This is Franchise Today, brought to you by FRM Solutions, providers of the best-in-class software solutions for franchise relationship management. Franchise Today is your destination for weekly information, conversations, and interviews with accomplished industry leaders, all of whom share best practices for sustainable growth and sensible franchising. Here now, your host, Stan Friedman, to kick off this week's podcast. Today is Wednesday, November 4th. I'm Stan Friedman, and this is Franchise Today. So, is it just me or what? I mean, it seems like just yesterday when we were eagerly anticipating the start of a new decade, looking forward to the countdown to 2020, a year that we hoped would live up to its name, serving up clarity, perfect vision and the like. Well, 2020 arrived all right, but forget about the rest. And then no sooner than it got here, Q1 seemed just as quickly to be behind us. And in its wake, we found ourselves caught in the backdraft of coronavirus with fear, sickness, lockdowns, and changes to our lives unlike any that we've ever seen, much less experienced. Back then, Election Day still felt like it was way out in the distance, and many were focused on the swirling uncertainties of PPP, PPE, finding our next roll of toilet paper, and wondering when all of this might go away and what our businesses would look like and our lives as well when it finally did. Then, if corona wasn't enough, along came the George Floyd travesty and the civil unrest that followed. Along with that came more uncertainty and destabilization, followed by a second wave of coronavirus. And before you know it, today is November 4th. Yesterday was election day, and here we are a day later, votes still being counted, and nobody for sure can tell you who the next president of the United States will be. So again, I ask, is it just me? Or are others of you too suffering? from some whiplash. Well, what little I can do to remedy that, for those of you who are, is to return from our upcoming break, joined by the calming voice and steady hands of Madison Job, Chief Development Officer at Wingstop. Madison joins us to share his insights through the eyes of one who's seen it all in his illustrious franchise career, which began as a restaurant franchisee and operator, a QSR and franchising thought leader and professional, and for the past many years as a restaurant and franchising C-level executive. Madison joins us today to share his insights and points of view as Chief Development Officer of Wingstop. A quick revenue break, and I'll be right back with Madison Joe. Franchise Today will be right back, but first, a word from our sponsors. We are all familiar with Vistage, YPO, and EO. Well, now comes Zor Forum, a somewhat similar type of executive group, but this one comes with a twist. Zor Forum groups are exclusively for franchisors. Imagine a peer group for sharing and networking on a platform built exclusively for franchise executives. Zor Forum members are afforded unparalleled access to best practices and some of the brightest minds within the franchising world through regular meetings and a dedicated communications platform. In this post-COVID world, a franchise-specific mastermind or peer group is an endeavor worth making time for. Zorforum groups of 6 to 10 will bring leaders together that are in similar situations, but with exclusivity in terms of their competitive set so that each can openly help others benefit from their respective knowledge, perspective, and experience with no fear of competitive loss. Network, learn, strategize, and remain motivated along your journey. Join a peer group, not just any peer group. Join the only one designed for emerging franchisors. Join Zorforum. Learn more at zorforum.org. That's www.zorforum.org. 
Madison Job is a veteran restaurateur, franchisee, franchisor, thought leader, and executive. Since 2017, he served as the chief development officer at Wingstop. Active in the IFA, the National Restaurant Association, the ICSC, Madison is also a frequent panelist, speaker, and facilitator at many franchise and restaurant industry conferences and events. Madison has deep experience on both the development and ops sides of the house. With decades of prior industry experience at such well-known brands as the Ruby Restaurant Group, Red Robin International, and Rave Restaurant Group as well. I'm very proud to call him a longtime friend, and it's my pleasure to say, Madison Job, welcome to Franchise Today. Good afternoon, Stan. It's always a pleasure talking with you, Madison. You know, I've been trying to think about how long it's been since we've known each other. You and I both have had some changes in our careers along the way. Where was I when I first met you? I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it was all the way back to when you were first on the restaurant side of the business as well. So that would have been quite a while back then. That would have taken us back into the 90s. You and I started in franchising in the same year, in 1988. That is when I got into the development side of the business seriously. Well, I on the other hand, was with real estate franchisors for a very long time, and we never really socialized well with anyone outside of real estate. We never participated, per se, in IFA or broader industry events. So I never got exposed to anything until Blimpy years, and that, to me, was an entirely new world. Which brings me to our first question for you, Madison. We always ask our guests to take us back to where franchising found them. Well, that's that's a great question to get started with, Stan, uh, because mine is probably a little different than most people that I know, my first exposure to franchising literally is I was born in the business. And by that, I mean, uh, my father was a early licensee known at the time and then to become a franchisee later in the Whataburger system here in Texas. And so um, my perspective in franchising work growing up and working in a family business was from a franchisee point of view. And I understood the concept of having a license from Whataburger to operate, but but frankly, uh, of course, you know, even as a teenager and, and then through college, not probably completely understanding the franchise relationship, certainly as I know it today. But that was, I believe, what grounded me in the business and has always made me probably have a different view than many people who start in franchising out of many times a, a sales or other opportunity background. And by being the franchisee first and being in the restaurant business where I've spent virtually all of my career with a couple of exceptions has always given me a different perspective. And it's it's not even just about having empathy for franchisees or for franchise prospects. It truly is having a complete understanding because I was able to experience everything that, that I've ever asked anyone or told them to expect if they came into a franchise system from making the investment to paying rent or making your mortgage payment at the bank or sweating payroll or any of the other things you do in the startup days of any business. Having been through myself that, that same experiences at an early age has always given me that franchisee perspective, even after working on the franchisor side, as you mentioned, for over 30 years now. Well, I always tell our guests that unless they come from generational franchising experience, that franchising finds them. Typically, I'd use the examples of like Dina Dwyer Owen 
Clintons or the Titus family. If you're not part of a dynasty, two men in a truck, Melanie Bergeron and Mary Ellen Sheets, that kind of experience is really terrific experience. But when we talk about yours, I think we're in an even tighter fraternity, aren't we? I think now of guys like John Metz or Aslam Khan, who have been on the Zorenzi side of the business, and that's a much smaller clique. So you really have brought with you a tremendous amount of insight. And as you said, well beyond just empathy, but practical experience through the eyes of a franchisee certainly gives you a much different paradigm, doesn't it? It does. And I think that comes through in a number of different ways. And I would have to admit that if you would have been talking to me um, 40 years ago as a franchisee, I would have really talked to you about the quick serve business. And, and that's where my real passion was around the food and around the people side of the business, both the customer experience as well as, as having your own team of people working for you. So that really is what I thought my love was at the time. But after having the opportunity to sell that very successful business uh, back to the franchisor, just through that process, I learned a lot more about franchisors and how they function and why they franchise or why they reacquire territories from franchisees. Or in some cases, they decide to refranchise their corporate stores again. And so it gave me a broader understanding truly around the franchise model, not just being in the restaurant business. And so after we sold that business, both my father and I selling our franchises in the 80s uh, back to Whataburger Corporation, that's when I chose to work and take my experience to the franchisor side of the business. Since then, learned tremendously. So if we met when I was back in blimpy days, that then would have put you back in Red Robin days, wouldn't it? That's correct. So can you walk us up, Madison, through some of the benchmarks, some of the milestones of your career through that span of years that brings us to the present day where we can talk more as the interview progresses and we unpack it about chicken wings, something that we are both extremely passionate about for various <laughs> reasons. Let's begin, though, way back when and take us through some of the career choices that you've made that brought you to the place where you could become a chief development officer. Sure, I'd be happy to stand. Uh, as you said, when I joined Red Robin back in uh, 88, that was my first position where I was solely in franchise development. I was brought in to really take what was at the time very early on effort with franchising for Red Robin. We only had, I believe, 22 company stores when I joined the chain at that time. And so it was an opportunity for me to solely focus on development, where before that I'd done some work in development, but I'd primarily been on the franchise operations side of the business. And so when I joined there, frankly, became an awareness very quickly of some of the things that I did not know yet about the business, particularly in, in being purely on the development side. So it was an opportunity for me to really build my skills and hone a craft that I had never been fully focused on before. And it also presented a somewhat of a unique challenge for me in that at that time, Red Robin was owned parent company Skylark Limited of Japan. And while they were the second largest restaurant company in Japan, this was their only investment in the U.S. And franchise was literally a, a foreign concept to them. I, I often joke, but it is true that 
the word franchise does not translate into Japanese. And so even though the senior management that I worked with spoke uh, Japanese, well, some of them only spoke Japanese, so we communicated through an interpreter, they would be describing something in the Japanese language and then the word franchise would come out. So I knew at that point when the word doesn't translate that there was a lot of education to do, which made mm-hmm. me dig deeper, made me have a fuller understanding myself so that I could in turn articulate and educate a Japanese-owned company about the franchise relationship in the U.S. And I went on to do that and, and even take a broader scope and role than franchising in Red Robin over the, the next nine years that I was with that company. But that really is what set me on the path and required me to work diligently. And that's when I first got actively involved in IFA, where tremendous educational opportunity for me to essentially learn the proper skills around franchise development. Walk us up from there to what came next. You've had pizza in your life a couple of times, haven't you? What came first, Shakey's or Pizza In? I don't remember. <laughs> It was Shakey's. And out of that, after Red Robin, which was working toward a public offering at that point, they had moved their headquarters out of California, where I was based. And I chose not to relocate with them. And I had some opportunities to begin consulting. And so Shakey's Pizza was a client of mine for over four years, where I started out only consulting and then became a contract employee for them. In a quite different situation with Shakey's, right? A very old, established, mature brand which frankly, at that time, we were working through some retrenching and deciding markets that made sense for us to exit and other markets that we needed to bolster our development in, which Southern California, frankly, being one of those strongholds along with a couple of other markets outside of California. So it was a very different experience dealing with a larger company at the time, but one that had been franchising for about 30 years at that point. And so to be able to be involved in really reshaping and taking what had been a dormant franchise development program, as well as some challenges around repairing relationships and building stronger relationships with the existing franchise base, it was quite a different and unique challenge for me. And then ultimately helping prepare and shape the company to be sold, which was their ultimate desire. It was a very different experience. So I learned not only the operation pizza side of the business, but I learned what it's like to deal with a very large, mature, many second and third generations in the same family franchisees. And with Red Robin being owned by that Japanese holding company, were there any international implications for you other than trying to teach them franchising? Right. We did a lot of work around planning for the future. Stan, that was my first involvement doing some deep dive studies with some of the large consulting groups that that we would all know. But in Asia, Pacific, Japan, as well as Hong Kong. At that time, of course, mainland China was not open to it, but Hong Kong, where we did a great deal of study, Australia, as well as first introduced franchising then into the rest of North America and into Canada and to Mexico. So Madison, walk us up from there to what came next along the way, because on this side of the break, I'd like to get us right up to Wingstop. And then coming back on the other side of our break, we'll get to really dive into more of that and what's been going on in your 
life and the lives of your franchisees during this crazy, ridiculous 2020 a year, unlike others? Sure. After I had finished that project with Shakey's, I then joined a, a small company, Ruby's Diner, based in Southern California. And Ruby's had franchisees that had been almost exclusively former general managers of the company, had been able to acquire franchises on a one-by-one basis, but they had never had a formal franchise development program and one that involved recruitment outside of their existing system. So it was able to, again, have a big impact on a, on a small company by really designing their first franchise program, updating, of course, all the franchise documentation and putting a number of the things that I had learned from my prior experiences in place to be able to prepare them to launch outside of their Southern California base. And over the next few years, we did accomplish that by opening the first units in Arizona and Colorado and Washington State, along with a a couple of others in a non-traditional way in food courts and two airports. So it was, uh, again, a chance for me to bring those prior experiences and put it in place into a small company had been in existence for a time. They certainly would have been what today we would call an emerging brand as far as their growth outside of their home base and through franchising. And then from there to the stockade companies and then from there up to Pizza Inn, right? That's Exactly. You, you have it perfect. Um, I wasn't sure. The only place I was not sure was Shakey's or Pizza Inn, which came first. No, you've had it right here. So I then had the opportunity to get back closer to home, which is Texas for my wife and I. So I joined Stockade Companies, which again is a company that had been around for well over 30 years. At one time, their initial concept, which is Sirloin Stockade, had been much larger and they had reduced the footprint of that as the buffet slash budget steakhouse side of the business throughout the late 90s into the early 2000s certainly was in decline in general. But they had developed two other concepts under the same umbrella. And one of them, Montana Mike's, which was somewhat similar, still is to a a Texas Roadhouse. And they had some of the existing principles within the company that had opened some locations, but again, had never had a formal franchising program and had never reached out for outside contacts. And I knew when I joined that company that the primary partner lived just outside of Austin, Texas, and we were going to relocate the headquarters back to Texas. So over the course of the next four years, worked with the stockade companies with most of the franchise emphasis around the Montana Mike's brand, designing the first prototype, doing ground up buildings, things that I had done and my learning experience back in my Red Robin days when we were building primarily ground up freestanding buildings. So uh, another opportunity for me to put those skills in place and take that brand out into a new marketplace as well as adding new franchisees to the system. And of course, I don't have to tell anyone in this business, if you have a long memory, what it was like back in 08 and 09 financially. The economy obviously was tough and financing was hard to come by, particularly for freestanding restaurants and growth and development began to slow. So I received an unexpected call and was recruited by 
by uh, Pizza Inn, who again, another long standing brand that had been in business at that point for many, many years. As with a lot of people in the pizza business, you either grow big or you can either stagnate. Pizza Inn obviously had been bypassed at that point in their life cycle pretty dramatically by Pizza Hut, even though they started about the same time. And any number of other brands that, of course, came on the scene later, like a Domino's and Papa John's, for example. But it was an opportunity under a new uh, CEO. His name was Charlie Morrison. And not only did Charlie want to bring a new life into the pizza and brand, eventually after that developed a new concept called Pi 5 Pizza, which was one of the early players in the fast casual quick serve pizza market. So again, my experiences there was my second opportunity to be an officer of a public company. Of course, that in and of itself brings some uniqueness and challenges to working within a public environment. And also through my time there, served uh, in the capacities of chief development officer, as well as chief operating officer for what is now known as the Rave Restaurant Group. Two questions come to mind based on that experience, Madison. One is the the balance between being on the versus the development side aren't too many pros in our business that excel at both. And you've had a great number of years doing either. Where do you find yourself, if you were rubbing the genie out of the lamp, where's your natural sweet spot? I think I've really built the affinity for the development side of the business, Stan. I have a great fondness for being in restaurants and working with operators, but I really like the development side and I've been able to develop both corporately owned company stores, if you will, as well as franchise stores primarily in a number of these brands. And when you can bring someone into a system and you're selling them not only opportunity, but you're selling a lifestyle or a lifestyle that they want to aspire to. And then you see that success. You, know, you see the success of the first one gets open and they're starting to achieve it. And then they open number five or number 10 or the longer you want to go. And many of those people all the way back to my Red Robin days, even now that are still in that business, I have some contact with and it's just very gratifying to be able to see and know that you've given them the opportunity for that success. And it really is that, right? It is their hard work and their risk that made it happen. But being able to pick the right partners and have the tools and the system in place where they have the opportunity to succeed is very gratifying for me. So I would have to say over all these years, I, I certainly have a bigger affinity for the ongoing development side of the business. My other question has to do with public versus private enterprises, but I'll tell you what let's do. Let's save that till the other side of the break. I'd like for you to just be able to, in a few moments time, if you could just bring us up before the break to the current day with a couple of, of the other milestones in your life, places that you serve. And this is giving the audience a tremendous opportunity to just understand the depth of your background and experience. And then we'll dive in on the back half talking about bringing all that to bear at Wingstop. Be delighted to stand. After I left Rave, I again went to my own business doing some consulting for about the next four years, as well as consulting all across the franchise business and had a client for a good portion of that time that was outside of the restaurant business as well with Watermill Express. And it was satisfying 
trying to have a number of different clients and be working with there. And frankly, I thought uh, at that stage of my career, I probably would uh, continue on that path for a number of years to come. And again, I got an unexpected call one day from the former CEO at Rave Restaurant who had since transitioned on to Wingstop and told me that there was an opportunity forthcoming due to a retirement within the company. And uh, would I be interested in rejoining his team? And uh, I can assure you it was a, a fairly short conversation and a <laughs> decision. Well, I guess you're just the perfect example of the saying that I use frequently about how we change shirts, but we collect people. And so if somebody like Charlie Morrison has you in his life once, is he not bound to have you in his life again? Yeah, I, I think that is um, that is what is so special about this business is, is the network you build. Well, let's take that break that I've been threatening for a little while and pay a couple of bills. And when we come back, let's dive into your life at Wingstop. Some of the amazing things that have occurred there over the last several years. The difference between public and private ownership is something I want to come back to. And of course, we want to talk about the impact that COVID-19 and the coronavirus has had on your business, as well as your franchisees and of course, their families and those that they serve around the globe. We're with Madison Job, Chief Development Officer at Wingstop, and we'll be right back. Franchise Today will be right back. But first, a word from our sponsors. This portion of Franchise Today is brought to you by Zoracle. Providers of spot-on profiles, the gold standard of assessment tools that assure you're selecting the right franchisees every time. Unlike DISC or others that simply gauge personality or communication styles, Zoracle's spot-on assessments are all franchise-specific and based upon seven sciences that nail the results each and every time. Your prospects simply answer a few questions online and like magic, Zoracle's algorithms scientifically slice, dice, and analyze their thresholds for risk, their business acumen, and even their propensity for single or multi-unit ownership. Zoracle's spot-on analysis is like having a crystal ball. But there's no hoodoo here. It's all based upon science that flawlessly determines franchisee, franchisor compatibility, and accurately predicts performance. Why don't you schedule a demo today and take a complimentary look and see for yourself. It's the closest thing to a sure thing. Zoracle, spot on assessments based on science, but delivering results that seem simply magical. Check them out at www.zoracleprofiles.com. And we are back continuing our conversation with Madison Job, Chief Development Officer at Wingstop. I want to go back to a question just before the break that I said I wanted to raise, which is the question of publicly held companies. This is your second time in leadership in a franchise company that is held publicly. And it begs a question in my mind as to how you reconcile the financial responsibilities and fiduciaries to shareholders if anything causes conflict with a decision that may be in the best interest of state stakeholders being franchisees. How does that come together and how does that stay in balance? Well, Stan, that is, that is a good question. And, and it is a good question because of all the things you name there. It, it is at times you know, somewhat of a balancing act, if you will. But the way we approach it, clearly our, our stakeholders are not only the shareholders, but clearly our franchisees that we call our brand partners and then to our own internal team. And so we, when we make decisions and when we invest 
invest in people or we investment spend in systems or technologies. We're looking at what is the broader benefit for that. And I think with Wingstop and, and what's known in the market today as a company like us, which is primarily over 90% and will continue to be that way at the pace we're on, being a franchised system, we're called an asset-like company, meaning obviously we don't own a lot of brick and mortar ourselves. So the success of Wingstop and our success going forward is very dependent upon our brand partners and our franchisees. So if we continue to focus on that and we do things that provide for growth opportunities for them, that continue to give them the opportunity to have best-in-class returns as they continue to invest and grow in the company, then the outcome of that is that we get good returns as a company and offer value for our shareholders. In my past experiences, when you don't have a company that has as good a financial model as we do, if you do not have growth and reason for growth to go forward, then it's very easy for a company to revert to, okay, how do we control expenses? How do we squeeze another penny a share profit into a quarter because of what the market expects from us? And it it is not that any of those things you're not thinking through. You have the same set of circumstances and how we're positioned at Wingstop. It's just that you can focus on the opposite end of that, of how do we continue to allow and support our brand partners to grow? You know, Stan, last year and the same this year, we were roughly rounding up to about 90% of our new restaurant growth came from existing brand partners building more restaurants. And when you have that kind of attractive financial model that works is you just have to control your processes and your projects, if you will, as you're looking at innovation or anything else to what is going to best support the brand and allow for that kind of continued growth, which in turn will automatically deliver the kind of shareholder value that you need to continue to grow in a public market. I think you shed another light on it for me, Madison, in that I didn't realize that such a large percentage of the chain was franchise owned with no company ownership of any significant degree, which I think that too becomes part of the dance when a publicly held company is also owning and operating on one side of the house as compared to franchisees on the other. And then you've got the public-private element. On top of that, I can see much more potential for conflict of who it is that you are putting in the first or second position on any given day, whereas you don't struggle with that here at all, then, being an asset-light company, do you? No, not at all. We know, again, uh, the success of our franchisees, our brand partners are really the success of our company, and that's where we're going to put our emphasis. You know, we do maintain, I think today, it's not not by percentage, just by pure sore count, 30 or 31 company-owned, if you will, locations, and, and those are in three markets that they're spread in. And we want to, in that regard, be in the same business in part, obviously, is what our brand partners are. So we want to have, you know, some of our own money in that game, if you will, and being sure that we understand exactly what they face every day, which is part of why we are spread over over three markets, all of which are mixed markets, meaning that we have typically more brand partners there than we have just the company operations. But so we, we can be in the same business they are and that we understand exactly when someone has an idea or you implement a new system or you want to work through something from an innovation standpoint is that we understand that at the same level they do because we have even, albeit a handful of restaurants out of the near 1,500, we do have that same 
context and point of view that our, our brand partners, franchisees have when we implement something into the system. What's the breakdown on that 1500 Madison domestic versus overseas? In round numbers, we are just over 100 locations international. Clearly, we're in our infancy internationally. So the balance of that being uh, over 1300 are in the U.S. And of those that are international, North America versus across the pond? We are in Mexico is our largest market. And the balance of those then are just went into Europe. We're in UK, opened our first location in France a matter of months ago, in the Middle East and in Asia Pacific. There is no better validation in Madison to me than those that are already in the family wanting to grow. And so with that as such a tremendous metric inside of your organization, how difficult is it for someone from the outside to become part of the organization if they choose to? Well, clearly, as you can tell, Stan, we are very selective in picking our brand partners. I would say today we are much more interested in a brand partner that is wanting to add another concept to their portfolio. So the couple of considerations that we would have is around what concepts are they in and how much development do they have committed to some of these other concepts. You don't want to be just one of many things that they're looking to develop. We would we'd like to be one of a few things so that we can uh, develop at a pace and have the kind of superior operations that we look for in new brand partners. So that would be the ideal candidate. You can imagine being in the business as you were in the same side of it before. The a number of calls, particularly that we get as a public company that's had good performance from private equity, from family offices, from others that are really looking to be more investors. And frankly, most of those calls, I strongly encourage them to, if they're interested in being a part of this great story, that they really should look at being a, um, a stock owner in most of those cases rather than a, a franchisee or brand partner. So we are very selective by our numbers. It needs to be a market that makes great sense for us. It needs to be, again, with a brand partner that has the financial ability as well as the infrastructure to grow at a rapid pace. We know that particularly if we're going into new markets or if we're into an emerging market that we are recently in, of course, the sooner that we can reach a critical mass and build our brand awareness in that local market, the more successful typically that all of the locations will be from a sales perspective. So it is a bit of strategic planning on our part by prioritizing markets where we need additional growth. And if it's not available to us inside, meaning one of our existing brand partners, take on either more geography or in many cases, take on a new market, then that's when we begin pursuing outside of our existing system so that we can strategically continue to fill out the U.S. But to me, no matter which way you go, it all sounds like you very much begin with the end in mind. And there's a great deal of deliberation in terms of the strategic thinking that goes into which markets and with whom and very little left to chance. Then along comes 2020. And <laughs> And no matter how well you've planned for the future and no matter how your one, three or five year strategic plans may have looked, 2020 did one thing for everyone and that caused many of them to have major pivots in their lives and in their businesses. I would proffer that Wingstop was one of the few that really didn't need to pivot as much as fine tune in that I would always have viewed your brand as being so market ready for a crisis like this because it's what you did before anyway, right? Very much so. I mean, if you're on the inside, 
outside team like me working, it, it seemed like you probably did think you pivoted or at least you made some changes very quickly. But compared to what many of our competitors are, or just frankly other people that I know in the business, what they've gone through, those are folks that really had to pivot and, and completely change their model. I think you said it more accurately. It was really about us fine-tuning what we were doing and in a couple of specific areas, maybe implementing some things that we had already been working on. Madison added all the learnings of 2020 and we're a long way from finished with Corona or more aptly, it's a long way from finished with us. What would you share with an audience of emerging franchisors that may not yet have the assets and the resources and the tools available to them, much less the budgets that would be available at a wing stop? But what are the things that they can and should be putting primary, secondary, and tertiary in their thinking in terms of coming through this, both in development as well as to the consumer side and keeping trust in the brand? I would think that regardless of your size or your capitalization, I think a couple of things are key to have gotten this far through this pandemic, as well as emerging out the other side at whatever point in time that comes. Some very key points, and I know many, many franchisors have done this well, but I found more than ever, our franchisee brand partners were looking for direction. They were looking for us to make critical decisions that even if we had not had to make them before as a company, they certainly had not had to make these kind of decisions and knowing and acknowledging they're part of a brand that has brand standards. So decisions that needed to be made and needed to be made quickly. So we immediately launched in March an internal task force. We met once or twice a day for the first 21 days of this beginning on, I believe, March 16th, uh, once or twice a day on Zoom and going through the critical points. And I think just to put, a, as I look at this, internally at our company anyway, there really are two distinct phases. There was that initial phase where no one knew exactly what was going to happen. We were one of the first chains to close all of our dining rooms. And we did that again at that same time frame in March before any jurisdiction required us to. But we thought out of an abundance of caution for our frontline team members that are working there, as well as our guests, that we should shut down dine-in business immediately. And to your point, Stan, earlier, we were much better positioned than many other people that could have made that overnight decision because our business pre-COVID was already approximately 80% off-premise. So it was a matter of fine-tuning, I think is what you said, some of our systems, and, and I would agree with that. But the first parts of those unknowns, how is business? It wasn't as if we closed our dining room and our business went up overnight. Our business was already running ahead of last year in a normal environment. And after the first couple of weeks, as we began to see that we were very well positioned and having our robust business pickup, as well as delivery that we had gone with just over a year ago, chain-wide. We were well-positioned and began capturing additional sales rather quickly. But even with that, there were all of the issues that we had to deal with logistically. When you think about over 1,300 locations in the U.S., where do you find all the PPE that you need? Where do you find masks when you couldn't find masks anywhere? Where do you get hand sanitizer or disinfecting detergents and things that you need? 
need for cleaning dishes as well as cleaning the entire restaurant? Where do you find enough of this and supply chain is overtaxed and your regular suppliers don't have it? So there are a lot of things that one of our core values at Wingstop is being entrepreneurial. And I will say that we used all of our entrepreneurial efforts and resources, much like some of the networking people that you and I have been talking about, the people in operations have and people in our supply chain have, just that we could get everything we needed to sustain our ongoing operations. And and once doing that, being able to reassure our franchisee brand partners that you're going to get your fresh chicken order this week, you're going to get this next supply of hand sanitizer that we don't even normally directly distribute out through us from corporately if we depend on our suppliers for that. But going out and securing these things in mass so that we could reassure them that they would have what they needed to operate, operate properly and operate safely. And that really was what I call that phase one. That was our primary focus. And then we went through even a little more restriction that began to obviously impact development. We had many jurisdictions and in some cases entire states where any construction was deemed non-essential and so it stopped for a period of time. But then we kind of moved to the next phase, which was around, okay, this is going to be the norm for some undetermined period of time. And we kept using then just as we are now. It is a very fluid situation. As you see more recently, there have been some cities and counties that have had to restrict some of the openness that they had already allowed because of the the rise in cases. So we have always stayed prepared for that kind of back and forth. But in this phase, we've also learned new and different ways to do things, particularly around development. We were able to, during that phase of COVID, actually go through and in a couple of cases, we were able to get a FaceTime inspections throughout the progress of building so that we had a a building official on the other side walking through with our general contractor, FaceTiming, checking critical things, and in many cases, only requiring an in-person inspection uh, prior to issuing a certificate of occupancy at the end. So a number of things like that we have been able to institute and work very hard and in some cases educate the building officials and city or county jurisdictions on these things that were not normal for them. But With that, we were then able to regain the momentum that we had previously, and our results reflect that, not only in top-line sales, but the fact that we opened a number of restaurants during the second quarter of this year, despite the pandemic taking about two months of that almost completely away from us at that time. So, Madison, I think trust is the key word here that I've heard you describe. In every level of what you've just talked about, it's about building trust between you, the franchisor, and your disease, they and their inspectors, their teams of people, their customer base. Everything you've talked about is steady hands. That's how it sounds to me. I think that is key. And Stan, as you know, when you have trust and you have that established that mutual trust, then you can be very transparent. You can be very vulnerable, whether it's with your own team or whether it's with your brand partners out there. You can be honest if when you have to say, we don't have the solution for this yet, but we are working on it and we will come with the solution quickly and just being very honest and straightforward and over communicating. We 
have built our internal organization and our methods of management around a number of things. But one of them are based on a number of principles out of Patrick Lencioni books. And when you start going through there and you can be very open and honest, transparent conversations, once you've built that trust, you have a mutual trust, you can endure the worst of situations and actually not not only survive, but learn to thrive in those situations if you're properly prepared for it. Madison, I could go on for hours with you, but the clock is not going to allow that. So instead, why don't you let me ask you if there's anything I haven't asked you that you wished I did, would you share that with us now? I think for people that are on the franchise development side of the business, I think you have to examine the franchise offering that you have. And I know for me, people have asked me, because in a couple of different companies, certainly this last four years with Wingstop has been very gratifying. And as a team, we've achieved a lot, but they've asked me, what's your secret to success, if you will? Have you sold so many franchises? Well, number one, I tried to just take that sold word out of it because it's a lot more than just selling something. And number two is, as I told them, I tried to hire better people than me. So when you're building these teams, look at your franchise offering, the model that you have and what you think you're trying to sell. And if you're a founder or if you're just a director of franchise development, is build a team around you that you have people that have experiences in different disciplines. And I felt like if I had a better salesperson on my team, if I had a person that knew more about construction than I ever intended to learn, or a person that could teach me things about real estate, that I would have a very successful, strong team that could deliver against any goals if I had the right franchise concept and the right franchise model that made people successful. Because without that, it really is just a sale. It's not making people successful to build the organization. Truer words cannot be spoken. Madison, would you be willing to share some contact information? I'd be delighted to. Of course, as you mentioned earlier, I'm on LinkedIn, and so I'm happy for people to reach out to me there. Email is mjobe, J-O-B-E, at wingstop.com. Madison Job, Chief Development Officer at Wingstop and good personal friend. Can't thank you enough for joining here today and sharing so much with us, Madison. Well, thank you, Stan. It's been my pleasure. I enjoy listening to these, and so uh, I'm happy to be a part of it. Did you hear what Madison just said about surrounding himself with teammates that are better or smarter than he? Well, I want to take just a moment as we close out today to talk about one of his teammates, as Bev Rich just retired last Friday as Senior Director of Franchise Development at Wingstop following a 15-year run. Bev played a big part in Wingstop's atomic growth, with more than 1,400 development commitments to her credit signed by brand partners. When Bev joined Wingstop in December 2005, she had no prior franchise development experience, but with an innate skill set to evaluate people and match them with the right opportunity. She knew this brand was going to have a bright future, and she was excited to be in a role that could offer folks who are interested in owning their own businesses the opportunity to propel the company forward. Through the years, Bev gained a wealth of knowledge about other aspects of development in addition to sales to include real estate and construction. But when you ask her what it was she enjoyed most, she'd tell you it was having the good fortune to help so many families attain their own professional and personal goals. Advice to others from Bev would be, be humble, respectful, and truly listen to others. Follow the golden rule and listen to this one. Take full advantage of mentors in your life. They are there for you because they truly care about you as a person and genuinely want you to succeed. Well, isn't that exactly what Madison just said? What a great alignment in that corporate culture. 
and the very best to you in retirement, Beverich. It's been a pleasure having you in my life and involved with us over the years at the National Buffalo Wing Festival. Hope we find a way to stay tethered. So we ran a little long this week, but what can I say? The content was rich, and I hope you'll agree. Please like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, subscribe wherever podcasts are found, and you know the drill. Please continue to stay safe, keep doing the best that you can, and until next week, I'm Stan Friedman wishing you the best, the very best of all things franchising, and Franchise Today is out. Franchise Today is a production of FRM Solutions, providing best-in-class CRM tools to empower relationships with prospective and existing franchisees. No excuses, just solutions. Find them online at frmsolutions.com. Join Stan every Wednesday at noon Eastern for another live episode of Franchise Today. Or, as always, download episodes on demand at blogtalkradio.com or iTunes.